Hi, and thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome to episode 43 of the Dream 10X Podcast. It's your boy JC. And Dr. Capel. <laughs> it's the end of March here, end of the first quarter, and it's been a doozy of a year so far. And this month, we've had a few people that were key players in the technology industry pass away, namely uh, Stephen Wilhite. I don't know if you remember him. He created the GIF. <laughs> the graphical interchange format. So it is GIF, not GIF. It's GIF. Okay. That, 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 that's what he said. Yeah. It's GIF. GIF and uh, also read an obituary uh, this weekend in the um, Wall Street Journal about a man named John Roach. And again, James Haggerty wrote this obituary. He's a great obituary writer. Um, but John, John Roach was from Fort Worth, Texas. And he was an executive in the Tandy Corporation. Have you ever heard of the Tandy Corporation? Mm, this that? is not the Tandem Computer Company, but the Tandy Corporation. Oh yeah, my dad had one of those. Tandy Corporation um, ran, ran Radio Shack. They yeah. ran Radio Shack. Yeah. And I used to love Radio Shack as a kid. I loved all the Heath kits and all the electronic kits that you could buy there and do all these experiments and stuff. But uh, Tandy also created the TRS-80 computer. Yeah, we had one of those. You did? Yeah. <laughs> that was my very first computer, yeah. TRS-80 color computer, and I loved that thing. I was uh, just a kid, and that's where I started getting my chops, uh, learning to program basic on a TRS color computer, and it was just a desktop thing, and you'd plug it into your TV, and you could just uh, start programming mm-hmm. in basic, looking at your TV screen. That's and so cool. You recorded your programs on a uh, compact disc, uh, or not a disc, what am I thinking? Floppy disc. Uh, no, not a floppy disc, a uh, tape. Uh, di- uh, tape. A tape. Tape cassette. Tape. tape cassette. That's what we called them. Tape cassette. <laughs> Good lord. You know what tape cassette is? <laughs> I'm not that young. <laughs> it, was a, it was a tape cassette. You would wow. record your program to that, and it would turn slowly, and it would take you know, minutes to record your little program on that thing. And then uh, if you wanted to load it back, then you just press play on the the uh, tape cassette player and it would load it onto the computer again. Oh, that was, so it was cool. magical, magical time. So anyway, I just wanted to point out John Roach and he just passed away. He was born in 1938, mm. died in 2022. And um, that was great, great computing platform there, the TRS-80. So uh, rip those two guys. So this week we're talking about a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. Have you ever heard of Blue Ocean Strategy? Yes, I read it a million years ago. Yeah? Mm-hmm. You read this book? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> See, all this, I, all I'm doing here well, is trying to catch up What James reads, what I read now. Because you already read it. You already read it. Um, so this book was pointed out to me, was recommended to me by somebody in my mastermind, and so I got it and uh, just finished reading it. And it was written by W. Chan Kim and Renee Moborn, and both of these people are associated with NSEED. Have you heard of NSEED? NSEED is one of the world's top-renowned MBA program, mm. and it's, I think it's based in Europe. It's mostly out of Paris. Cool. But the interesting thing about NSEED is that 
It was created by Georges Doriot. And we've talked about Georges Doriot before. I don't we know have? If you remember. And no. I, his name sounded familiar. I was like, I know we've talked about him. I got to refresh my memory. And sure enough, it was in episode 22 uh, when we talked about Tom Perkins, Valley Boy, the, the venture capitalist. And uh, venture capitalism really all started with Georges Doriot. Um, so Georges Doriot was an immigrant from France. He came to the United States. He went to Harvard Business School. He ended up being a professor at Harvard Business School. And then uh, he created a company called um, American Research and Development, ARD. And that was one of, if not the first venture firm in America. No kidding. Yeah. Oh. Was, um, so anyway, NSEED, Georges Doriot. Uh, he, George Dorio founded Inseed. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the things that he got going. Fascinating guy. And I have this book sitting on my bookshelf about George Dorio. It's called Creative Capital. And so uh, all of these are investment books that I've had that I'm going to, I want to start focusing on these. Um, a lot of good books here, especially this one about Sam Snell. He's a, he's a really interesting character. I really like him. Um, a, Jew who escaped Nazi Germany or Nazi uh, World War II era, left Hungary, I think, came to the United States, became a very successful real estate investor. George Dorio. Some of those. So these these are some of the books that are on my to-do list here. Looking forward to uh, learning more about venture capital in the United States. So anyway, that's how NC came to be. George Dorio. Um, that's who these guys are from. Um, that's really cool. Anything else I wanted to say there? No. All right. So anyway, um, just looking at my notes here on this book, packed full of information. Um, it's about it's a business book primarily, and it's about blue ocean strategies. And so, what's a blue ocean strategy? So here are my top five takeaways from this book. And the number the, the first one is describing and explaining what a blue ocean strategy is. What is a blue ocean? Um, what what, do you, what would you say a blue ocean is? Well, let's start with what a red ocean is. Okay. What's uh, a red ocean? What? <laughs> oh, you're going to bounce it to me. <laughs> a red ocean is a highly competitive business environment where there's just lots of competition. And basically, companies are entrenched uh, with one another when they're in a red ocean environment, red ocean competitive environment, because they're continuously looking at their competition solely and they're trying to outmaneuver one another trying to eke out a little bit more profit out of the other innovate a little bit from the other, all the other people in the competition and you're uh, you're kind of entrenched in uh, competition warfare from in a business environment and you're not looking at the broader perspective of what you know the broader market of what might be possible in the broader market so and that's what, red ocean and what does leadership look like in the red ocean just, just what I said. That what they're is, they're fo focused primarily on the competition that they're dealing with. What does leadership and, and do differently? You tell me. Okay, so that, I, I didn't know how much you got into that piece of it, but they really focus on the when Red Ocean, like who that leader is, with their qualities and traits, and, and versus the behaviors and actions. Like Blue Ocean leadership is more like actions, the actions that they take, not who the leader needs to be, which I thought was really interesting. And then, uh, it's, as you said, they're connected less in Red Ocean, less to reality <laughs> and less to their customer. And uh, they want to really focus on the middle and or they want to focus on the higher level, what the senior executives want and the executives want versus Blue Ocean, where it's really looking at 
what a middle managers need and empowering the people on the front lines to really take action where they can. Okay. Um, I would also argue that blue ocean, so a blue ocean a competitive environment is where your company has wide open space to uh, innovate and address uh, new customer wants and needs uh, without any competition really. And um, I would say that a blue ocean competitive environment is more customer focused. Absolutely, yeah. Whereas in the red ocean, you're more just trying, you're, you're more focused on your competition and trying to outmaneuver them and figure out what they're doing. Competition, what leadership wants versus what your customer wants. Yeah, yeah. so the blue ocean sounds like the place where your company wants to be for the most part. However, I think you're never, the company's never fully in either blue ocean or red ocean. It's kind of a combination of the two, uh, specific, uh, especially when companies are able to diversify their products and services, then you typically get a mix of both. You've got some products and services that are entrenched still and the red ocean competition, whereas others got, oh, we got some blue green grass, blue field, blue ocean here over here, it's wide open. So, uh, and things are constantly changing. So you never have just a pure, you rarely have just a pure blue ocean uh, situation in your company. So that's the distinction between blue versus red. Um, Never had thought of that before, so so that was a good takeaway. Um, my second takeaway from this book is that um, you know red ocean and business environments are less desirable be because of that intense competition competition that we just talked about. Um, and like I said, things are never really just black and white or blue or red. It's generally a combination of the two, and that. Uh, companies can offer diversity of their products and services, just like I said, and um, red ocean competition is not all that bad because it forces the company to evolve and, and uh, do things that help them survive. Mm -hmm. And whereas because of that competition, so because of that competitive stress that companies are under, um, it forces a company to do things that help them to become better and stronger. Whereas in a blue ocean environment, you're not typically, you're, you're, you're not, no one's competing with you. So you're doing well and you're, you're not typically, you don't typically want to change from what you're doing when you're doing well. Okay. And so nobody copies you and then you're in a red ocean, then you got to find your new blue ocean. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's an ever changing dynamic. Uh, so number three, blue ocean examples, examples of blue ocean uh, situations. What do those look like? And so Appendix A of the book is really interesting in that regard because it gives a lot of good examples for what companies look like in a blue ocean environment. And one of the ones that I thought, one of the uh, biz, excuse me, business anecdotes that I thought was really good was the one about um, Ford uh, and the Model T. Mm. In 1908, I did not know this, but there were over 500 automobile manufacturers in 1908. No way! I had no idea. <laughs> I always thought Ford was like the first, the only one, the only one. Yeah. But they were. They were. Wow. They were. They came on the scene later, and there were 500 companies all like clamoring to get this new technology out to the people. Wow! This that automotive out. This automotive combustion engine technology out to the people then, and. Their main competition at the time were horse-drawn carriages. Which we should go back to. And so, 
And that's really interesting. So horse-drawn carriages at the time cost about $800. Uh, I, I think that's in 1908 dollars, not in current day dollars, mm -hmm. I think. I'm not sure. Minus, like, cost of the horse and maintaining the horse and all that. Yeah, but then when you factor in the cost of a car, yeah. you know, fuel and yeah. uh, maintenance mm -hmm. and oil and all that stuff, that adds up too. So, um so Ford came onto the scene and basically wiped out all the competition. And he did that by making the Model T very simple. Mm -hmm. It was a very simple automotive platform. You only had one choice of color. Oh. That was black. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting. Like, customers didn't have a choice there. Yeah. We just said, he just said, you can only have black, and that's, that's what they got. Yeah, and they like loved branding. it. Yeah. It was simple. Yeah. Like, they didn't have to think. That's what you're getting. <laughs> Um, and you will but, like it. <laughs> and, but things changed from there, interestingly enough, uh, especially with GMC and, mm. and all the companies after that. But at the time, that was how he differentiated his company. Very mm -hmm. simple, very uh, not a lot of choice in what you got. Um, what else here? Uh, the production line, he simplified the production line greatly. So mm. um, you didn't have these craftsmen working on each of the individual pieces of the car and assembling it, he made it so simple that anybody, he could hire anybody off the street, teach them what to do in any given position along the, mm -hmm. along the assembly line, and they could then assemble the car. And he got the, the time down for a car assembly down from, I think it was almost a month, something like 21 days or something, down to just four days. Wow. And he got the cost down significantly as well. So it was all about the assembly line at that point mm -hmm. in, in reducing the cost. Mm -hmm. And so cost is important, obviously. I mean, you, you gotta get your cost down so you can have a better price a price valuation offering for your customers. So and, it's kind of like McDonald's where they had the whole map of, they realized that it was inefficient the way they cooked burgers. And so they mapped it out on the floor and exactly. took turns to, okay, interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. all about reducing the cost yeah. uh, within the company for what it takes you to produce a product. Huh. And uh, so they ultimately got the, uh, over the course of something like four years or something like that, uh, Ford got the cost down uh, to $290 for a Whoa. Model T, whereas uh, in 1924, the cost of a horse and buggy was $400. So as a customer, that's almost a no-brainer, right? But you, then you don't have a horse anymore. <laughs> but you see everybody else able to travel so yeah. much further and do so much more with a $290 vehicle as yeah. opposed to the... Uh, I'm gonna keep my screen alive here. As opposed to the $400 horse and buggy option. Yeah. At that point, he had global appeal mm. uh, for his product. Hmm. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Uh, two, two key, uh, well, a lot of key takeaways there. Simplicity, very simple product. Um, a multitude of options aren't always the best. That's not always what your customer wants. They yeah. don't always want to have to, for me, especially when I'm looking at a brand new, here's a great example, surfboard skegs. Oh my gosh. I was researching, <laughs> I wanted to, I want to build a surfboard with my daughter. And so I'm research. I don't know anything about surfboards. Um, so I'm researching surfboards and, and trying to figure out what kind of skeg do I need to get her? The little, uh, what do you call those things? Skegs, they're the little, uh, little fins that are fins. on the bottom. Little <laughs> fins on the bottom of a surfboard. There are so many types of, of fins to get, and I, I just wanted to. I don't, I don't know what I want. I just wanted to build a surfboard with my daughter, a cheap, 
cheap surfboard just you know for the experience there's so many skags you can choose from i i had no idea and uh this is that is a great example of how there's too many options for the consumer and even when they, you were looking up options it didn't tell you what the skags did like how does it change <laughs> how the surfboard moves it was just oh yeah. do you want the shape the shape so there was no help to help you make that decision yeah yeah yeah, there's absolutely nothing out there. That, I mean, and it just took so much time to research. I'm like, oh, I'll just throw a dart on the board and let's just pick the cheapest one. Uh, so simplicity is huge. And yeah. I really love that. Um, reducing internal costs is a really great thing to take to heart um, the, the, from a company perspective. Mm -hmm. Things you can do to reduce the overall cost of producing a product or service. And then um, the reduction of uh, the, pr the overall price uh, and, and the increase of the value that you offer to your customers. Mm. So, you, so you're offering a low price and a huge value that they can't turn away. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you got Blue Ocean right there. Like mm -hmm. Model T became the car for everybody essentially. Even though there were so fi over 500 automobile makers. That just blows me away. That, I had no idea. Wow. So... That's a red ocean at the time. He's he's like a shark. He swims into this red ocean and <laughs> kills everybody. He creates a blue ocean. That, I, I love that. So that was my third takeaway. Fourth takeaway from this book. Um, there is actually a process that this book defines or lays out that companies can follow to find their blue ocean. So that was really interesting too. So if you find if you're in a company and you find yourself in a red ocean. Hey, this book has got a process that, and a strategy uh, framework that you can follow to help you identify blue ocean um, areas that you can move your company into and how to go about doing it. So mm -hmm. um, some of those, it, it, now I have to admit that the process was a little confusing to me and I had to go read through it again and it's a step-by-step -step thing, it's very detailed and I'm not an MBA, right? I mean, just look at me. <laughs> so. Uh, it, it takes it takes a while to assimilate that that formula, but it is here in this book. Um, uh, some of those uh, some of the formula includes um, reconstruct market boundaries. So basically, have a broader market look uh, at what your competition is. Don't just focus on where you're currently selling, but go beyond that. Mm -hmm. uh, open up your lens there. Uh, focus on big picture and not on numbers. I thought that was really interesting because numbers can be deceiving, uh, uh, oddly enough. I mean, a lot of companies brag about being data-driven, mm -hmm. but uh, the data can be deceiving if you're not looking at a big picture. So uh, that's a really key point that I took away there. Uh, Plus, data-driven doesn't really necessarily take in all of the humanity piece of it, yep. and so it's not a holistic approach right. if you're primarily data-driven, yep. yep. which a yep. lot of executives are. Yep. Um, reach beyond existing demand. Um, identify non-customers. I thought that was really interesting too. Um, don't just look at who your cu current customers are, but try to identify who your non-customers are. And a great anecdote here was on page 105, <laughs> talking about golf, the, you know, the world of golf. And uh, this particular company, Callaway, wanted to know, well, uh, why are there some people who join up in different clubs and um, sports enthusiasts, why don't they take up golf? What is it about them that causes them not to take up golf? And I hate golf, by the way. <laughs> um, so I thought this was really funny. So they, they, uh, they, they 
found these people out and they talked to them and they asked them and they said, ask, you know, what is it about golf that you don't like? And the, the main theme across all of these verbal surveys that they did interviews was that it's too hard to hit that little white ball and then it's a pain in the butt, you know, to go find it and, and all that stuff. So they took that information and they created a new driver called Big Bertha. And I think <laughs> this is so funny because I went golfing with some work buddies way back when and uh, I knew nothing about golf really. Uh, and one of them had a Big Bertha and one had a Killer B and that was kind of the joke like, hey, give me that Big Bertha because that was the only thing I could hit the ball with was like the Killer B or the Big Bertha. Mm -hmm. So I was borrowing their drivers to hit the ball. So anyway, I thought this was pretty funny. Um, so they created this big head on a driver called the Big Bertha, and it made it e it makes it easier for people to hit the ball with from a driver. So it, so all of a sudden, golf has a larger appeal to mm -hmm. people, and um, so that helped them uh, find a blue ocean for for the, and they dominated their market for for drivers for for up to ten years. Wow, that's incredible because of that. And yeah. the key one of the key things to take away from that is they actually talk to people who weren't their customers, but they talked to people who were in the general vicinity of what they were, what their market was. People mm -hmm. who were in that, you know, kind of tangentially related to golf in some way, but weren't actually participating in golf. Yeah, yeah. That's really smart. Yeah, talk, talk to them. Oh my God, talk Ask to them. people? <laughs> what yeah, do they want? <laughs> don't sit in your cube looking at data. Yeah. Go out and talk to, talk to people. Find yeah. out what it is. Find out what the real deal is. Uh, so what, what are we talking about here? This was the the third, fourth one, uh, third. Uh, I thought it was the fourth shoot. one. Uh, I lost my notes. The fourth one. The, the fourth one. Was it the fourth one already? I thought it was the fourth one. Okay, the process. Yeah, process people can follow. Um, another key takeaway from the process was this idea of tipping point leadership. Have you heard of that? I have not. <laughs> tipping point leadership. This was good. Um. Tipping point leadership is all about speaking of or talking about talking to people and finding out what their interests and what their drivers are. Tipping point leadership is actually about uh, changing an organization, changing paradigms, changing thought processes by actually showing people the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm. And one of the great stories here was about uh, police New York City Police Commissioner Bill Branton who helped reduce crime greatly uh, 30, 30 uh, murders got reduced down to 39 percent in New York City uh, sorry 50 percent felony crime 39 percent theft 35 percent and he did this all in two years when he became the new police commissioner and he used this this type of leadership called tipping point leadership and one of the things he did was um, to actually show decision makers firsthand what the problems were. So looking at the data, the crime rate in New York City on the subways was only something like 3%. It was something really low. So the police force didn't go down to the um, subways and stuff because the data showed that it wasn't a problem. So they were trying to focus their resources on where the data showed the problems were. Come to find out, though, nobody was riding the subways because there was so much crime on the subways. Mm. And so many people like jumping the turnstiles and not paying, and it was just rampant chaos. To come, it, the reality was chaos on the subways. Yeah. 
So what Brant, uh, Brant, Branton did was take key leadership down to the subways and made them ride. Oh, that's smart. And when they did that, they realized, holy crap, this is a mess. Yeah. <laughs> we need to solve this. So one of the things he did was start putting cops on, on the cars. Mm-hmm. And uh, that helped clean up a lot of that issue. And so there was a lot of those things like, you know, uh, driving the beat with him. Yeah. You know, he, even though he was a commissioner, he would go drive the beat and see what, what's the real deal. And so tipping point leadership is about, is about addressing reality and it's about getting the kingpins in the organization all together and, and getting them to help drive change. Mm. So addressing the change on the fringes rather than trying to get the whole organization to change at once. And so he was able to affect great change in two years as opposed to like, you know, a Jack Welch type of organizational change that took 10 years or so. So tipping point leadership, that was really, really interesting. And then finally, my fifth big takeaway from this book was uh, information about the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Oh yeah, what's that? Keep the screen alive. No, I'll touch the pad yet. F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, you never heard of it? Nope. <laughs> okay, so you've heard of the Navy, right? <laughs> what's that? <laughs> so the Navy, the Marines, and the Air Force uh, used to all have their own type of fighter. You know, the Air Force had that, what was it, F-15 or F-16 or whatever, and Navy had F-18. Mm. What did the Marines have? Mm. Uh, A-8 Harrier. These were all uh, aircraft that the individual branches had and that were quickly becoming out of date and, mm. and all that kind of thing. You, oh, it's out of date. That's the Navy. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I think it's kind of funny that, you know, they said, oh, our aircraft is out of t- date. We need to revamp it. And then you think about the A-10, the uh, Warthog. You know what the A-10 yeah. is? <laughs> still around. Yeah. Still a great uh, platform for killing tanks and stuff. But anyway. Um, so these three branches uh, were like, hey, we need new aircraft, DOD. Uh, please give us something because our, our aircraft are getting old and outdated. So uh, DOD uh, came up with a blue ocean idea blue blue ocean idea to combine what each of the individual individual branches requirements were for a new aircraft into a single aircraft that so basically you have one aircraft to rule them all um and that became the f-35 joint strike fighter Mm -hmm. idea and so in my mind it's like oh that you know that promised to reduce overall cost uh, to the government, to DOD or whatever, by th- roughly a third mm-hmm. by combining all of them into one platform. Um, however, the execution of the idea uh, proved not as great. Like they, they, there were a ton of cost overruns and all that. But um, they, and I don't know the full history of it. But I, I just thought this was really interesting, uh, primarily because of the idea of combining the wants and desires of all these three forces into one thing. I thought that was, that's a really brilliant move. Yeah. Uh, I really like that. Um, however, I think the the execution uh, proved very complicated because because of the fact that you were combining requirements from three different stovepipe, stovepipe branches. And uh, I can imagine just what a huge headache that has been. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately what happened is uh, I was just looking at Wikipedia real quick before this. That, so now we have an F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. However, there are three different variants of that. 
happier. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. Maybe it would have just been best to, you know, hey, Navy, you go develop your ultimate fighting platform. And Air Force, you go to, you know, maybe that would have been more efficient at the end of the day. And this, uh, this whole concept, uh, this whole engineering concept of, uh, kind of uh, monolithic versus modular mm -hmm. is just such an interesting thing that uh, all organizations f wrestle with. And I think it would be an interesting, I don't know if there's a book out there already that talks about that, but how to think about modular versus monolithic and pros and cons and, you know, I don't know. It's just an interesting thing. But. It is, yeah. So, uh, so F-35 is still around. Um, there are three different variants, apparently, and I, I just thought that was funny. It segues really nicely with when we talked about the uh, Disney Bob Iger book mm -hmm. because um, rem I remember talking about how they approached Marvel to mm -hmm. buy them and how it was such a slam dunk because they had a catalog of all these great characters yeah. that they could build out into individual movies and how that was like such a great intellectual property thing that they had to offer. Oh, but totally. in terms of Blue Ocean, Marvel... <laughs> Take it away! <laughs> oh goodness. So, um, so Marvel has been around a long time, and in the 30s, when they were created, they were like all the other comic book companies—the same kind of superheroes and those kinds of things. So they were in a red ocean, and so in the 60s, my hero Stanley, of course, and uh, figured out how to diversify Marvel a little bit by creating superheroes that would relate not to children, because that was the target market but to college-age people. And so they focused on superheroes as humans first. So you look at Spider-Man, he's definitely a teenage kid going all through the, his teenage hormones and things, um, and superheroes second. And uh, so the Hulk, all these other characters, obviously human first and superhero second. And so that really appealed to a totally different non-customer. And obviously it took off. Um, this is why all the She-Hulk comics are out, although She-Hulk was not created until the 80s. The sensational She-Hulk. I read these books, she reads comic books. Yeah. <laughs> she has a doctorate, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that was one Blue Ocean tactic that they did, which I thought was really cool, by really changing their market focus and picking up non-customers. There's a whole case study on the Blue Ocean website, just so you know if you ever want to read it. And then they looked at, so they, they're under new management, they're wildly successful, things are amazing, executives start taking all the money, there's lots of middle management, and they start to go bankrupt. So like, oh crap, we're going bankrupt, now what do we do? So they hired in a new CEO, and he took a look at a different way. So he used the four frameworks, eliminated you know Hollywood-style operations, eliminated the big offices, the high salaries, eliminated middle management, because nobody needs those folks. I'm one of them, so, you know, what can I say? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not needed. My team's awesome. Um, they eliminated, like, so a lot of the infrastructure that was creating all these costs and uh, changed, again, their leadership style to be more frontline, empowering everybody to create that creative story, have that emotional connection, like Pixar, if you want to look at Pixar and some of the ways that brain trust to create that emotional connection with their customer. And then um, they used... Uh, creative committees to create their own universe, which is this whole comic book portfolio Catalog, that you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. 
And then they went to Disney and got merged with Disney. And so that really saved the company, their new approach. And that would have been wildly unthinkable to merge with billion dollar move, bill, yep. Literally billion dollar movement. And, and then by going into Hollywood movies, it just totally transformed the industry. And then picked up, you know, all of us old folks who loved the comics as a kid, yeah. uh, re-engaged us in this genre. And of course, I rebuilt my collection so <laughs> <laughs> i love that thank you very much yep. uh for for adding that to it and also you picked up on the 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 four what do you call those yeah uh, it's the four frameworks i actually use the this four frameworks also yeah there's a big big mention in here that i didn't yeah pull out but those are very important it know, is and I, I actually use this when i do create learning opportunities for people and i did a value proposition of learning for my last organization based on this hmm. saying that here's all the stuff that's wrong here's where we're good but overall like this is where we can really diversify ourselves within our organization in a training industry mm -hmm. and it was successful after i left so that was good and we're talking about the raise eliminate yep. create and reduce Those so are yeah raises which factors are, should be raised well above the industry standard eliminate is what needs to go mm -hmm. reduce is uh the factors that are below the standards and then create is what's new and exciting mm. so you mix those four together and voila yeah you've got innovation and not just innovation for the sake of innovation but innovation for the sake of providing a value proposition mm -hmm. to some new set of new set or a new set and existing set of customers yep so that's it in a nutshell thank you very much for that that's great um <laughs> that's why she has a doctorate huh? <laughs> Blue Ocean Strategy, uh, thank you for watching and we'll see you in April. Over now. Bye.